0: We are continuing our sermon series in 2 Corinthians, so if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'd love to bring you a Bible. We're going to be in chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2. I think one of the hardest lessons for me to learn, and I've learned this lesson the hard way, is when should I speak? And when should I not speak? I've gotten into a lot of trouble speaking when I should not have spoken and being quiet when I should have spoken. And I think it's especially you know the wisdom of when to speak and when not to speak. I think especially when someone says something about you that is not true. Some of you have had that painful experience, whether it was online, whether you heard about it or whether you heard it from that person someone said something untrue about you and in that moment you had to make a decision what are you going to do your reputation is tarnished are you going to respond or are you going to let your silence maybe your godliness your holiness speak for itself Now, leaders, often this just comes part and parcel with what it means to be a leader. You will be scrutinized, you will be criticized, and sometimes it's just really hard to know when should you defend yourself and when should you not defend yourself. When should you defend your reputation and when should you be silent? This morning, Paul defends his reputation, and he was wise and it was good that he defended his reputation in light of an allegation, an untrue allegation that was levied on Paul. Sometimes we're called to be silent, but sometimes we're called to speak up, in courage, in confidence, and to defend our reputation. Now, there's lots of situations in which it might be wise for you to defend your reputation. Maybe your job depends on it. We can make a list of lots of ways in which it might be wise and right to stand up for your reputation and to defend your reputation. But Paul today is in a situation not just that he ought to, but that he had to. He had to defend his reputation because of what was at stake. And this morning I want to show you why Paul defended his reputation, what was at stake, the grave importance of why he went to great lengths to defend himself against untrue and false allegations. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We're going to start in verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understood, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my, fir- on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But as I call God to witness against me, it was to spare you and I that I might refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for you. We'll stop there. Now, before we kind of get into why Paul fights to defend his reputation, there's a prerequisite to one. There's a sort of prerequisite to why Paul did it. There's something that he had to make sure was in place first before he began to defend his reputation to the church in Corinth. Paul's aim in this section is to defend himself, but first He has to make sure that his conscience is clean. Paul planted a church in Corinth, and after writing a letter of rebuke, that's 1 Corinthians, it's a letter where Paul is warning the church who was sliding into some immoral behavior and beliefs, and so Paul writes that letter of rebuke to that wayward church, and he then waits. He ends that letter after writing it, saying, I'm going to visit you soon. If you've read 1 Corinthians recently, in chapter 15, he makes his travel plans. I'm going to come visit you soon. I hope you respond well to this, and I'll see you soon. And yet, Paul changes the plan. Paul says, this this, this is the plan. I'm going to visit you, but His itinerary changed, and we see the heart of that conflict down in verse 15, don't we? Paul had wanted to come to Corinth not once, but twice. And then in verse 16, we read this. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. That was the plan. But things changed. And as a result of this, Paul has now heard what these allegations are that are levied against him. We see that in verse 17. They're just sort of formed in rhetorical questions. Paul writes this. This is the sort of rhetorical questions that he's hearing are being levied against him. He says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh ready to say yes, yes, and no, no? So the allegations that the church in Corinth was levying on Paul because he changed his plans was, Paul, you're like wishy-washy. Paul, you say one thing, but you do another. The plan was in place. We had a good plan. You were going to come and visit. You haven't. Paul, your word has failed. Now, we know that uh, plans change, right? They change all the time. Like, flat tires happen, and you can't make it to work on time. A couple days after Christmas, I was going to get on a plane to go to Mexico with about 16, 17 other men and women to go on a mission trip to encourage a church to a little pastor's conference, and yet I got really, really sick and couldn't go. So we have a category for those sorts of things, right? We have a category for when things outside of our control happen and plans change. But what about those plans that are deliberate, where you deliberately change the plan? Those are harder, aren't they? Right? So your employee isn't late because of a wreck on the freeway. Your employee is late because they just wanted to have a great brunch. That's harder, isn't it? When someone deliberately changes the plan, it's harder for us to engage with those people. And what inevitably happens is this. What begins with saying, you're late, well, we begin to then look at the person and say, maybe they're not just late, Maybe there's something deficient in their character. Maybe they're lazy. So what starts with sort of attacking their decision begins to attack the content of their character. And that's what was going on in Paul's day. Paul, why the change of plan? Paul, don't you know your yes mean yes and your no mean no? Paul, don't you know that your word should be your bond? Don't you know that when you deliberately change the plan here, it had implications? They began to jump to conclusions. I think we do this all the time. We don't see or we can't know all the details of why a plan changes, and so we jump to conclusions. I'll give you a modern example. So imagine if our church, an Edgewood Bible Church, a sister church of ours, both supported the same missionary. And this missionary was on furlough, they came to the States and they went to Edgewood Bible Church on a Sunday and preached there and encouraged that church there and then flew home. Inevitably, don't you kind of connect the dots wondering, do they like that church more than our church? What's wrong with our church? Is there something wrong? We we do this all the time, right? We fill the gap. When plans change and we fill it wondering, well, what's the deal here? And that's what was going on in Paul's day. The plans changed. And they would begin to attack Paul and say, I don't know if we can trust you. Your integrity must be tarnished. You're still in Ephesus. Do you like the church in Ephesus more than you like the church in Corinth? This is what was happening there. This is what happens to us. We begin to jump to inevitable conclusions. But Paul won't have any of it. And he goes to great pains to defend himself. Go back up to verse 12. Verse 12 through verse 14, Paul says, In light of these changes, his conscience is clear and clean. Verse 12. After all, he behaved with simplicity, Godly sincerity, not earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely towards you. Paul is saying, I am above reproach on this issue. His actions aren't careless. We're going to soon find out his actions are graceful. Paul writes, I got a clear conscience on this. After all, verse 13, he wrote to them after his first letter, informing him that the plans had changed. They had known that in part. He's not a liar. Paul's integrity is intact. And then verse 14, said with like such gusto, he says, I'm so certain that my conscience is clean on this issue that when Jesus Christ returns, he will vindicate me and he will boast about the truth of this situation. That's how serious and that's how honest, and that's how deep a belief Paul had that his conscience was clean. He would be vindicated by God himself. Then, if you keep going down to verse 23, Paul then once again says the same thing. As God is my witness, exhibit a God. I have a clear conscience. This is what I did. My conscience is completely clean. Paul calls down God as his witness and says, i changed the plans, not out of sin, not out of a lack of character, not because I didn't like you. I actually didn't come to you because I do like you. I do love you. And that's what verses uh, one to four of chapter two is all about. It's like really detailed. He goes back and forth talking about affliction and joy and happiness. And you can just summarize the whole thing to say, if I came to you, it would not have been for your good. So Paul writes First Corinthians, this sort of letter of rebuke, and it was not responded to well. And so he wrote another letter that we don't have, which he calls a severe letter, calling them to repentance. And had he come when he had planned to come, he would have just come in judgment and not in love and grace, because they had not been reconciled. And so he says, I could not come to you, and the reason I could not come to you is that I wanted there to be some time for you to respond to my second letter, to repent, to reconcile with me, and then I can come and encourage you, because if you don't encourage me, I'm not going to be encouraged, and I just didn't want to come with judgment. So it's not just that his conscience is clean in all of this, he also had a lot of reasons for why he decided not to come. Paul spends a lot of ink defending his change of plans, but he does so with that prerequisite in place. He does so because he knows his conscience is clean. I think sometimes we get a criticism against us, and it's instantly, we're like, we've got to defend ourselves. It's too painful not to. It's hard to swallow our pride in those moments. But for Paul, before he began to defend himself, he had to do some work within his own heart. He had to look at his own conscience. The conscience is a God-given gift to have us discern right from wrong. And Paul had to determine, was I right to change these plans? He had to do so prayerfully. He had to do so in community. He had to do so according to God's word. And as he did that, with brothers Timothy and Silvanus alongside of him, no doubt, he realized, no, my conscience is clean. And so he's not defending himself because he really, really, really wants his reputation to be exonerated. Paul, you know this if you read Paul at all, Paul cares less about his reputation, but he cares a lot about Christ's reputation, doesn't he? And that really is the heart of this reason for why he begins to defend himself. Having made sure that his conscience is clean in all this, he then explains, and this really is the heart of the letter, this is the really point of this section, the reason why he defends himself and the reason why he must defend himself isn't just because his reputation is on the line, it's because Christ's reputation is in fact at stake. That's the heart of the matter. After Paul explains the the sort of charges against him in verse 7, Paul writes these words. Let me read them again. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we preached among you, Savannas and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, this is a pretty dense section, but you could just see on the surface, Paul is shining a light on the faithfulness of God. We sing about it. Paul is writing about. God is faithful. All of the promises of God find their fulfillment in and through Jesus Christ. There is no time in which God has said yes and didn't fulfill that yes in real time. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. God never promises anything that he doesn't deliver on. God never doesn't show up. God is never late. He never fails in that regard. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Now, in a wonderful kind of phrase, "All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ." In a you know, a room filled with as many people as we have here, I'm guessing that at least some of us grew up in a culture or grew up believing that the Christian God is the God of no, that God is just standing up in heaven or you know, in the clouds playing a harp and just constantly wagging his finger, looking down on us in disgust and frustration, saying no, 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 that God is some cosmic killjoy, that any pleasure that there is out there, God is just always saying no, no, no. I think often that's how our world thinks about the Christian God. He just constantly says No but nothing could be further from the truth. In Christ, all of the promises of God find their yes, their amen. So to the question, does God love me? Well, just look at the cross. Look at Jesus dying in the place for sinners, and you can't come to any other conclusion other than yes. To the question, does God? can God save me? Am I too far gone? The answer is No. He can save you. Yes. Does God forgive me? Is God with me? Is God for me? Does God hear me? Does God care for me? Yes, 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 and more yes. If I can only get proximate justice here, and my reputation is tarnished even though I didn't do anything, will God vindicate me in the end? Yes. Is there any hope for me in my pain and suffering? Yes. The Christian gospel that Paul received, that Paul preached, that trickled down all of history and finds us here right now is the gospel that says
1: yes to our most essential
0: needs. The stereotype of God just cosmically killing all of our joys is just not the Christian God. God is the God of yes. There is an eternal yes for all our deepest needs in Jesus Christ. That's the message that Paul preached. But you see, that message, it was in jeopardy of losing its credibility. And that is why Paul needed to defend himself because in defending himself, he was defending the message. I mean, who cares about Paul. Well, the reason why Paul was so adamant that his reputation must be defended is because the church in Corinth was beginning to not believe the message that Paul preached. And that was a step too far. Notice in verses 21 through 22, Paul roots the character of God and he links his own character, his own identity, his own integrity and identity Paul weaves the character of Christ and his own character together. Now, why does he do that? Well, because, and I'm going to give you some examples of this, because the message and the man go together, or the woman and the word go together. So imagine for a minute if I was asked to give a TED Talk. This is going to be a ridiculous illustration for lots of different reasons. And they wanted me to talk about physicists, okay? And I said, I'm not a physicist. I've never read a book on physics, I'm pretty sure I can't pronounce or spell physicist very well. And I know very little about physicists, but I'm going to talk to you about quantum mechanics. Now, if I did that, you'd instantly be like, I'm not sure what you're going to say, and I'm skeptical at best, and I'm going to fact check everything you say. That's how this stuff works. Or you ever met those people that they're married for like two months, and then they get a blog talking about how all the lessons and how everyone should, you know, learn from the genius of their marriages, and you're like, buddy, why don't you wait 10, 15, 20 years and then write the book, right? They lack experience, and so their lack of experience makes them lack credibility. So it's not just education or experience that diminish our credibility. So does the character of a person. If you lack character as a person, it's hard for you to listen to them. So if you heard that you were going to take a Sunday school class on financial stewardship and you found out that the teacher of that Sunday school class, their great investment strategy is go to the casino every Friday night and invest in the casino, if you found out that they also had more debts that they could count and that they've never actually given a dime to any nonprofit, I'm guessing though their teaching might be biblical, you'd at least be skeptical because their life and their teaching didn't match. The man and his message go together. The woman and her word go together. We want a consistency in those two things. It's why the Bible talks so much about character. So in 1 Timothy and Titus, when Paul is writing and saying, this is what you should look for in an elder, there's one gift and skill, teaching, and then the rest are an elaboration of character. Character matters because you want the teaching of God's word to match the character of God. God's man they should go together and this is why it's so important for Paul to defend himself because his character is being attacked and therefore it's just not his character that's being attacked it's the character of his message that is being tarnished Paul didn't sin his conscience is clean on this issue and yet the church in Corinth didn't think so. They thought, Paul, your message about your itinerary plan is untrustworthy. Therefore, you're untrustworthy. Therefore, we're beginning to think your message that you preached to us and taught to us and instilled within us and we founded our church on is no longer trustworthy. See, the gospel was at stake. And so he goes to great length to defend himself because in defending himself, he was defending the message that he preached. Paul's like, I'm not a liar. The message that I came to you was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we proclaimed to you. That was the message. It was the message that transformed him, and it transformed them. Verse 22. God established us in Christ. God anointed us in Christ. God sealed us in Christ. He put his spirit in our hearts through Christ. That's the message. And the church in Corinth just because his Expedia travel plans changed, we're beginning to wonder. Can we trust Paul? And therefore, can we trust the message of Paul? That's why he goes to such great lengths, because the gospel is at stake. And brothers and sisters, it can happen today. Someone can say something bad about you online, and really, the gospel is not at stake we instantly sort of want to defend ourselves, but more often than not, you know, someone saying something, we just let our holiness, our godliness, and we just kind of let haters be haters, and we just go about our business and pray for them and encourage them, and we pick a different battle. But sometimes, things are said, and we must respond in defending ourself, our actions, because in not doing it, in being silent, we're actually realizing that the gospel in a man or woman's heart is being diminished. So if someone, I'll give you an example, so if someone on Facebook says something negative about the chapel church, well, okay, and what if they say something like, well, the chapel church hates people because of their theology of sexuality and gender. So the chapel church hates people. But what happens if a new Christian, maybe a new member in the church, begins to read that and begin to wonder, well, maybe the chapel church does hate people and maybe I should rethink my theology. Do you see? Now, now, you know, that's when you pursue that person. That's when you pursue them, get coffee, you open up your Bible and say, let's talk about this theology. Let's talk about our foundational theology. Let's defend why we believe what we believe. Let's Push back against saying, we don't hate people, we love people. We love people so much so that we want to preach the whole counsel of God and call them from darkness to light. You see the difference? Sometimes you just let the battle die because there's no, there's no win here. There's, the gospel's not at stake, but sometimes it is. And in those moments, we must be courageous and stand up for the reputation of, of the church, or maybe your own reputation, because it's actually not about you or about the church. It's actually about the reputation of Jesus Christ himself. Because that's our mission. It's not just our mission as a church. It's all Christian church's mission to set the glory of Christ on full display. And we do that in a lot of ways, right? We do that as we gather and sing and pray. We do that as we live our lives and, and follow Jesus and walk away from and say no to sin, we do that as we sing together and encourage each other and disciple each other and walk with each other in sorrow and joys. We do that in lots of different ways. We do that by sometimes just bearing burdens, by bearing reproach. After all, Jesus Christ bore reproach. Sometimes Jesus just let silence destroy his enemies. But other times Jesus spoke up, and sometimes we're called to stand up too. We're called to know Christ and make him know, and sometimes that means when our consciences allow and when the gospel is at stake, we must courageously, confidently defend the gospel by possibly defending our reputations. Now, I think we sort of have to be careful here because if you're anything like me, anytime anyone wounds my reputation, I instantly want to go after them. But when that happens in my own heart, I instantly know this is more about me than it is about Jesus. I'm guessing that there's a personality difference in this room. Some of us love to go to war on those situations, and others are terrified of conflict. Some of us need to be quiet more often, and just let Christ redeem our reputations. And some of us need to sometimes walk into the battle and for the sake of Christ's reputation, have that hard conversation and to say, oh, I did this or I did that, not for the reasons you think. I did this or that because I love you. But whatever your personality, the goal is always the same. It's the reputation of Jesus Christ. Our goal is not to always have the best personal reputations, to have always the, the best church reputation. Our goal should be, ought to be, to, in every way, in life, word and deed, to do our best to put the reputation of Christ on full display. And sometimes that means speaking and defending our reputation, because in doing so, we're actually defending the reputation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we realize and we understand and we acknowledge that some of our most consistent sins are sins of the tongue. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, wisdom to know when we should walk into hard conversations and conflict and do so humbly, do so joyfully, do so gently, and do so courageously. Not for our reputation, not for our sake, but for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of others' good. We pray that we would be a church that grows in wisdom to know when to speak and when to be silent, that we would be a church that lives on that razor's edge. And that we would be a church that is a safe place that when we make a mistake, when we speak when we should have not spoken or we don't speak when we should have, that we would be a church that would encourage each other, speak into each other's lives and we would gently and graciously correct one another so that we can grow in greater godliness. Thank you, Lord, that though we make our plans, your plans are better than ours. So we... As we sung earlier, we give you all our tomorrows. Excited, thrilled, and with great expectations for what you're going to do. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.